You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Tech Band Podcast 268. Special guest joining me this week, Peter Cohen. What technology needs the most revolution right now? Check this out. And it is Tech Fan Podcast number 268. I'm Tim Robertson, but David Cohen is not here this week. He is traveling, I think, to London. I could be mistaken. He's traveling somewhere for work, not vacation. But, uh, you know, I, I put a call out on Facebook, and uh, Peter Cohen, managing editor at the uh, Backblaze blog, joins me. Thank you very much for accepting uh, this invitation, Peter. Well, I figure, you know, when, where one Cohen isn't available, another will have to do. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, obviously, this is not your first time on TechFan. I think you've been on here like five times or something. You've been <laughs> on TechFan quite a bit. I love TechFan, man. Thank you very much for having me on again, Tim. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. One of the things that I've been thinking about doing a show, and I was kind of holding this for either when David had a guest on and I couldn't be here, or vice versa, is... What is the big tech items out there right now that is in most need of an update or a revolution? And so when I invited Peter and he accepted, that's what I sent him. I said, this is kind of the big topic this week. And there's no right answer. There's no, well, there could be a wrong answer, obviously. But there's no right answer. And this is opinion-based. And it's a huge topic. So this isn't a topic that we, you know waste the bullets on on this one show and that's it because this is something that could be ongoing and i kind of want to do that in the future when we have special guests this was going to be a topic in your opinion what are the big tech or tech items that really need to be updated peter you've you've had a few days to think about it what was the thing that kind of jumped out to you initially the uh, user interface on TVs is oh, so God. damn bad. Oh. oh, my God. I have, you know, home entertainment devices, if they're not made by Apple, have garbage interfaces. And even yep. Apple doesn't bat a 1,000. Oh, no, absolutely. I would agree 100% with that. I, think, I still think as nice as the Apple TV is, especially the new one, it leaves a lot to be desired. But companies like Sony and Panasonic, anybody who makes a television, it's dreadful. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the, the only thing worse on the, low, on the evolutionary scale in terms of user interfaces is probably the user interfaces in, uh, in, in car stereos. Mm, I would say computer monitors. I was just bitching about that last week, by the way, computer monitors. Well, computer monitors are basically just televisions. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, yeah we'll lump those in together. Yeah, cars are bad. Um, but yeah, let's I stick mean, with God, just trying to just trying to get my my friend's uh, iPhone synced to her Toyota pickup. Not like, good, huh? Oh no, it was a nightmare because it's completely it's a voice driven interface. Yep. But you have to know which button on the steering wheel to hit and what phrase to say in order to get the ball rolling. That's right, and I think that some of the companies that are switching over to both Google and Apple for their interface for the stereo st system is, I think that's the right call, but even those well, kind of suck. And think about this for a moment, Tim. Think about how ridiculous as a user experience this process is because essentially what you're doing as a user interface, what, what Toyota forces its users to do in this particular vehicle is essentially the same as like the Arabian Nights, where you have to say a magi magic incantation and make a gesture in order to have something happen. Yep. How are people supposed to know that? You're not, and that's the problem. And I think the bigger issue there, and it's not just Toyota, I think it's the television makers, I think it's the washing machines that has more of a complex operating system that you push buttons, is <clears throat> the operating... Siri, Siri. Siri is the operating systems and those kinds of things are built and designed by engineers and not artists, not, not those who actually understand how people interact with things. And that's what Apple really did well 
back in the 80s and in the 90s, I think, is when they were building the Mac, they understood how people were working. And it wasn't just engineers making it. It was like Susan Kerr, that she understood these are complex things. Let's give a real simple picture that's obvious what to do with it. You you click this. This is and it represents Susan that. Kerr, inventor of the dog cow. That's Yay! right. You know, and it was people like that who worked with the engineers to make the interfaces easier to use that made it so us mere mortals could figure out how to do something. And I think that's what's lacking big time, especially in the television, the auto industry, well, Tim, almost Tim, everything. You, you, you and I could have uh, yet another um, old fart uh, regalia about <laughs> the good old days when mm-hmm. Apple when Apple product design uh, included a sense of whimsy and yes. wonder that's completely missing from today's Gone. equipment. Yeah. Case in point, the iMac, the G4 iMac, the flower pot iMac. Remember that? Yeah. You know, Luxo Jr. Everybody called it because it reminded people of the Pixar short story. You know, it it it, it was a gorgeous design and it was whimsical. And I mean, when they advertised it, they advertised it making a face at a customer and the customer making a face back. It was just it was it was sweet. It was lighthearted. It was to get you interested in the technology. Nowadays, things are a little bit more um, utilitarian uh, and utilitarian. Yeah, and and uh, you know, I I think it's because Apple has focused so much of its attention on making the user interface disappear. So, you know, my 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 cry into the void. uh, You know, my 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 plea for change in tech is bring back the whimsy, bring back the wonder, bring back, you know, bring back a sense of humor. In products, you know, I love it when I read uh, release notes for updates to apps that don't take themselves entirely seriously. Yeah. That, that give me the information that I'm looking for, but then maybe a little bit of a wink or a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek comment, you know, just to let me know that it's okay to laugh along with the joke and it's, it's okay to have fun. And, you know, I think some of these companies take themselves way too seriously and some companies actually know how to kind of have fun. Now, you happen to work for Backblaze. Yes. And maybe two, three, four months ago, I watched a live stream on Facebook, or maybe it was Twitter. It was one of the two from Backblaze. It was a guy, I can't tell you his name, doing oh, a yes. tour, probably, doing a tour of the offices. And he was having such a good time. He was answering very serious questions that some people were posting. So it had to have been Facebook Live. But he was having a good time showing this work environment. And it it was fun. It made people, A, it made people probably want to work there. But B, and I think more importantly, you get the sense that while they care about the product and the customer intensely, they can still do that and have a great working environment and not take themselves so seriously all the time. Well, I don't think that you could make a great product for uh, great customers like we do without having a really awesome work environment. You know, a, a toxic work environment is going to kill any kind of good product. Yeah. You know, and we're we're just really lucky to have um, founders that really get it, and um, you know, from from one end of the organization to the other, everybody who's part of the team really gets how to be part of the team, and part of that is being able to communicate with your customers in a human way. You know, and I think that's what a lot of this boils down to. And I think a lot of the alienation that people have about tech. And I mean, you and I have both been in the, in the service sector in, in this business. So we know this firsthand when it comes to trying to fix people's gear when it doesn't work. It, whether it's, you know, whether it's, it's your, your, your Corolla or your um, toaster oven or your iPhone, most of us aren't equipped with the vocabulary and um, the, 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 the skills that we need to be able to talk intelligently about these devices when they don't work right. Mm-hmm. You know, most of us. Or even to ask simple questions sometimes. To know what is the right question to ask. Mm-hmm. You know, to make sure that I understand what's going on here. The, the plumbing in your walls, the electricity in your house. If you know a lot about this stuff, you're an outlier. You yes. know, you're, you're a tradesperson. You probably have a, a lot of 
familiar skill with one particular area, but chances are you don't know everything about everything. So eventually something is going to trip you up and you're going to have that moment of alienation where it's like it's a black box whose inner workings are unknown to me and I don't know. My experience is that most of us who rely on tech, whether it's an iPhone or a Samsung TV or a Withings scale or um, uh, a, a, uh, a, a pedometer or uh, a, a, um, a microwave oven, it does not matter. We're not experts on how these things work. We only know that they work or they don't. And when they don't, we're kind of left with our heads scratching about how to get them fixed and, 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 and what to do. So self-diagnosis of and, and self-repair of problems is an area that I think is ripe for disruption in tech in different kinds of ways. But do you think companies actually want to do that? Or do you think companies like Whirlpool, who makes a washer and dryer and the dryer stops working and I, I can't figure out what's wrong with it. I can call this guy. He can come in. He's going to charge me a hundred bucks an hour. He's going to have to come back again because the first one is just to tell me what's wrong. And then he's going to have to order parts. Part, parts are probably going to be 150 bucks, 200 bucks. He's going to come back at this point. I'm in at 500 bucks. You know what? I'm just going to go buy a new one. Well, and that's the other problem is that a lot of our stuff has become disposable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the days, the days of having a, a washing machine for 30 years are, Long, long, long behind us. The big pen of the business plan is kind of the norm now. When you're done with it, you throw it away and you buy a new one. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I mean, it's become increasingly that way for us in so many different ways. You know, we we Mac users used to pride ourselves on getting a decade out of a machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're really I think we're kind of still there now. I'll be honest with you. It depends. It depends. If you said Well, that's just when Apple releases a new machine is a decade. <laughs> wow! That's just, that's a that's a cry from the bitter Mac user out into the endless void right there. Uh, we've been talking about that lately, and and I asked on Twitter, and uh, the consensus is, and there's other podcasts I've been listening to, Accidental Tech Podcasts, for instance. They've been talking about this. Uh, John Gruber's been talking about it. A lot of people are talking about this. That. It, this is the longest I can remember that Apple's gone without significant upgrades to their product line on the Mac side. I mean, you could say the Mac Pro, yeah, it kind of languished, but it was just a box. And when they came out with a new one, it was just, you know, a new processor. But other than the 5K iMac have the in, in the MacBook, which is, in my opinion, kind of a step back from a technology standpoint anyways, what have they really come out with in the last three, four years? Nothing, really. I mean, it's just a little bit faster processor maybe, but they... It's very dangerous to discount the MacBook as a step back. I still haven't seen a whole lot in the wild. I I still see more MacBook Pros. Yeah, I guess maybe I, I'm more of I, – now, I don't have one. I've, I, I sort of switch my time between a MacBook Pro, which is actually in the shop this week, and uh, a MacBook Air. What, what happened to your Pro? Um, the Pro's had some lingering GPU issues mm-hmm. that finally required a depot uh, repair on Apple's part to try to get fixed that to sucks. my satisfaction. But, hey, look, it's four months out of Apple Care warranty, and they're still covering it, so I can't complain. I will much. say this about Apple. When you go into an Apple store and you're just out of warranty, they're really good about helping people out. If if you can make a case that the the problem that you're having is somehow linked to either service that you've had done before or a lingering issue that you've that you've documented, and I strongly encourage everybody, first of all, who buys a, a, a especially a laptop Mac, to get Apple Care, um, and secondly, uh, to document any problems that you've got with Apple Care. Because they do record the information. They, they record do. it in a system called GSX. It's recorded for everybody who's an authorized service provider to be able to read postmortem um, so they understand the service history of your machine. And it helps in cases like this where I can look back and say, hey, look, two years ago I was complaining about this and it still isn't fixed. Yep. So, you know, it, it makes it makes a big difference. It, it, it's it's a little bit of the squeaky wheel uh, gets the grease, but it's not. It's also about invoking your warranty and using your rights as a consumer the way that they're designed to be used. I'm looking at my TV remote right now for uh, just one of the TVs I have in my office, and it's really yeah. just my gaming. It's the only thing that's hooked up to it. I don't even have a, a, a cable box. It's just, you know, the PS3s and stuff like that. 
So it's a flat screen TV. Yeah, yeah. And there must be 55 buttons on this remote. And of course, the only ones I ever use, volume, power, and input. Yeah, input. That's it. That's all I ever use on this remote. I and don't even use the volume button on, on my, my TV because I've got the uh, audio pipe through the stereo. That's a good point there. So here's the question. Somebody waves their magic wand. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the entire television industry and monitors, we'll lump them in there too, says, we're going to take Peter's advice. We're going to concentrate for the next two years, R&D, and nothing but the human interface. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's going to work on the remotes as well because the remotes is it, that has to get more simple but what does the interface of a television look like to you that makes more sense is it icon based is it well, voice I think, driven i think xfinity and apple have both sort of demonstrated their proof of concept you know in in apple's siri remote for the apple tv and um Xfinity's X1, like mm-hmm. the voice command service. I, you know, I they sent me that remote before they actually released it. Um, I saw a thing on uh, Ooh, Press well, Wire. Are you special? I'm special, and I'm not even in Philadelphia where they're headquartered. Uh, but I, I kicked them an email and said, "Hey, I'd like to look at this when you guys release it." And the lady responded within five minutes, said, "This is coming out next month. How about I send you one now?" And I said, "Yeah, send it over." And uh, I, you know what? For voice command, it's probably the second best I've ever used. Is oh, and I'm including everything in there, Siri, Google, all of it. It's the second best. We love to, you know, and, and look, X1 has a lot of user interface issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but uh, and you know, we love to make Comcast the bad guy, but the the the, the X1 voice driven stuff is actually really useful. Um, there still seems to be a usage issue in my household where people just don't want to use it. They're uncomfortable talking to machines. Um, and I don't think that, that people, and you know, the, the basic problem, the user interface problem that, that I've always had with Siri, um, uh, you know, from, from my own perspective is not knowing what to say. Yeah. You know, because I, I'm talking to a disembodied, you know, AI someplace, right? I'm not talking to a person whose face I can look at and sort of, you know, formulate a thought while I'm, I'm talking to them or even, you know, sort of a back and forth like this. And also there, there's like there's a process when, when you're thinking where one thought will lead to another and, uh, you know, you'll have a, a, a string of, of connected thoughts that, you know, presents maybe a, a certain narrative flow or, or something that you're trying to say. You can't have that talk with Siri. No. Siri doesn't understand what the hell you're trying to say. No, absolutely. You know, so you have to think in your head, how am I going to talk to Siri? And, and that is a problem. The more that um, companies like Comcast and Apple can make these sorts of and, – and Google uh, and Microsoft can make these sorts of interfaces, parse natural language, and understand communication the way that humans actually communicate, I think the better off we'll be. It's not a hardware limitation anymore. That was the problem back in the day, that these computers just weren't fast enough, powerful enough – there wasn't this network infrastructure that it could take advantage of to self-learn. Those all, that's all been solved at this point. These computers and the network are more than powerful enough to handle this. Now it's the engineers working with the underlying technologies, and I don't think they're doing a great job right now. It reminds me of that scene from <clears throat> Disney's Aladdin. You know, when Genie's describing his life and he goes, Infinite cosmic power! <laughs> space! I, you know, I, sort of the world that we're in now with the cloud. Well, and Siri is like that, too, in that you have to be very specific. So if you ask the genie, I wish I had a million bucks, well, a million male deer show up. You know, you weren't specific. And Siri is kind of like that as well. See, this is what happens when I forget to turn off my phone. And I just push that button and it goes away. It's a sales call anyways. I hate those people. Um, my, I'm getting a ton of sales calls on my iPhone now. Yeah, are you seeing oh, that's that? Not happening. No, actually, that's not happening to me. I'm every time I get a sales call, I block that number. It, thankfully, it's very easy to do. But I'm seeing a huge uptick in uh, in sales calls on my iPhone. Half of them are uh, about a student loan, which was funny because I never went to college. And the other one is from your. This is your credit card company, really. My credit card company is referred to as your credit card company now. Awesome. I- 
I've been getting a lot of scam calls on my home line, which I don't even bother to check anymore. We don't actually have a phone connected to a landline anymore. You just go to the Comcast to see what the voice messages are. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like once a week, I sort of like clean out the yeah. the mailbox. And All junk. Yeah, it, but these, these, these robocalls are supposedly to get a discount from my local um, electrical uh, oh, uh, company. I've had people come up to my house in the last two years, like five different people wanting to look at my electric bill because they can save me a lot of money. Yeah, I'm sure they can. The Donkey Kong thing you may have just heard is my, uh, hey, you got a new voice message. <laughs> that is awesome. Mine, by the way, toe jam and roll. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Peter, by the way, for those who never listened to him on Tech Fan before or uh, many of the other shows that he's done, we're both gamers. Um, old school, old point school. op, you know, playing uh uh playing uh uh games with our newspaper money mm -hmm. uh, you know newspaper delivery money like like you were supposed to when you were 15 years old in yeah. the mid 80s absolutely i'd always yeah. go to this uh laundry mat that was in walking distance to play tempest that was my game for a long time you know it's actually really funny you should mention it because tempest my my enduring recollection of of tempest was actually vacationing in the town that I ended up living with uh, living in currently just coincidentally many many years later <laughs> and the market where I played it is still around they don't have is it real? no of course not you know it's funny uh last week I was talking about I got a, a really good deal on a uh halo for xbox one because i finally got an xbox one and it's still downloading games for it because i'm a xbox gold member so every month they release uh the beginning and the middle of the month they release free games for the 360 and the xbox one and i didn't have an xbox one but i was a gold member so i would just quote unquote buy them because it was free knowing that eventually i'll get an xbox one and it had like 25 games to download i was like this is awesome but here's the problem I've got an Xbox One. I've got a PS4. I've got all the systems. Let's put that out there. I still go back to... Big old nerd. Yeah. I, I, I sit here and I try to play. I started playing Halo 5, I guess is the number, uh, before we started recording this. And I played for about a half hour. And I can see while it, it's fun and the graphics are amazing, the gameplay, blah, blah, blah. I was getting bored. I'm like, meh. I'm just shooting things and running around and... Everything's just kind of high gloss. I can't quite figure out where I'm supposed to go. I keep bumping into walls like Mr. Magoo or something. Like, I guess I don't go this way. Let me let me open this up because I've I've I I think I I know what you're saying. Um, and I, I want to try to draw a different analogy. I was reading this past week that Pokemon Go is past its peak now, and um, it, and that means that 110 million people are playing it instead of 111. Right. By the way, the, the number of people well, Pokemon Go is, is still really high. Yes, but it has dropped down. I went through downtown Kalamazoo the other day compared oh, the, to the three weeks ago. Goes. Yes, yes. There are a lot. It's significantly dropped. We're past peak Pokemon yeah, Go. Yep. That's, that's the, the headline. Um, let's face it. Once you start playing it, it doesn't get very fun. No, it's not deep because, at all. Be, well, not only is it not deep, but it's also a grind. Yeah. And you know what? I've, I've realized I have a very limited tolerance for grinding in, in my life. In, <laughs> Not in, a skateboarder, in, huh? <laughs> in, well, you know, look, I, I was back in the day. Yeah. But, you know, shoot, buddy. I'm in my mid-40s, yeah, man. I hear you. That's a torn ACL waiting to happen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, you know, I, I – look, I – I just I have a very limited tolerance for gameplay mechanics that require me to do the same thing over and over and over again with less expectation of reward the more that I do it. That seems kind of Sisyphean to me yeah, and um, more than a little counterproductive and sort of the opposite of fun. That sounds more like work or even like weirdly a little bit like slavery. You know, it just it, it it becomes very unpalatable after a while, and that's that's been my problem with Pokemon Go. You know, it's it's like great. Okay, I got to about a, a level eleven, level twelve, 
And then it's like, so what am I supposed to do? Just leave the game running when I walk around all the time? Watch it drain my battery? Horribly. Oh gosh, horribly! Basically, just so I can grind up and 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 level up my incubator and hatch new eggs. Okay, great. So I get you know an occasional Pokemon every five kilometers that I walk, or every ten kilometers, or every two kilometers for the occasional lame egg. Um, and, and, and that's great. Otherwise, I'm catching them. I can't get near the gyms anymore because, quite frankly, people are camping on the gyms and they're putting these ridiculously high CP or combat point uh, ready monsters in the way. So, you know, the, the lame stuff that I've picked up and trained, you know, isn't, isn't ready to go up against that sort of stuff. I need baby gyms, you know. I need Jimboree, you know, for Pokemon. I should go get my eight-year-old Cole to talk to you about this because I play the game for five minutes total, and then I just handed him my uh, iPhone six plus and walk well, we around can with have him. A very special episode of Tech Fan where we did talk about nothing but Pokemon <laughs> Go. Well, my, my point in all this, Tim, is not that Pokemon Go is a bad game. It is, no, no, it's, it's a lot of fun. I've had fun with it. It's that there there's a point of diminishing returns, especially for people who aren't hardcore about it. Whether you're hardcore Pokemon or I don't know how you be a hardcore Pokemon Go player, but anyway, you know, it, it, there's there's a, a limited amount of fun that you can have before it becomes a task, before mm-hmm. it becomes onerous. Not something I want to have fun with, just something that I, I feel obliged to do. And game developers need to be very, very careful of treading that line. Not only with the hardcore stuff like the like the Halo games and uh, you know the, the the Call of Duties and all that other stuff, but the casual stuff as well. Because I, I don't think that you can count on that kind of gameplay mechanic to to have any kind of enduring um, appeal to anyone. No, and that's the problem. I think I'm running into this Halo game. I'm playing it, and it's it's amusing. Not in a ha-ha funny, but I'm I'm having fun playing it. But I've been there. I've done that. It's nothing new. It's just new lipstick on an, on a pig. Okay. it's not, I won't even say that. It, it It's a good game. But, you know, I played the first Halo when it came out on the original Xbox. Uh, I remember when Halo was supposed to be a Mac exclusive game from Bungie before Microsoft bought them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um but and I'm looking at the landscape of the most popular games for PS4 and Xbox One, and they're almost all shooters. There's nothing significantly different or new. Nothing that I feel like I could like lose myself and explore. And eh, it's just the same old thing that I've seen for the last 15 years. And there's just no innovation. And mm-hmm. You know, well, this is the thing that I, I've always cracked up about with the whole like you know culture wars around gamer uh, around games and gamers um, that's been going on for the past couple of years. And you know the sort of talk about gamer culture. If there was a culture worth salvaging, I would um, take that argument seriously. Right. You know, and and look, I'm not I'm not talking out of my butt about this. I wrote about games yeah. professionally for twenty years. Absolutely. You know, so I, I've got I, I, I put my bona fides up against anybody when it comes to when it comes to their expertise in the games area. It, it's a quagmire, you know. It, it and, and part of the problem is that the the, the business, at, at least on the hardcore end of it, is very driven by profit motivation. And 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 the companies that are, are and organizations that are interested in profit are by nature averse to risk. So they're not going to take chances on the really cool games. Um, that no one's ever heard of before. Under very rare circumstances, one of those might sneak through once in a while, but it's the edge case. It's not the rule. You know, mostly it's just sequels. It's it's sequels and and proven uh, properties and licenses because that's what consistently makes money. And unfortunately, consumers have grown to accept that, and that's how the entire business is based. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it just, it, it, it wears me down and it's just not something that I'm, I'm, I'm as bought into, I guess, as I used to be. And yet I I will spend all this time and energy getting the newer game systems and I'll play it for an hour, maybe two hours a week tops. But if I compare that to, I'm just going to turn on the arcade machine and I'm going to play burger time or donkey Kong or donkey Kong jr. Or miss Pac-Man. I'll play the arcade less because the game itself only lasts three, four minutes. Well, there's a few I can probably go for a good 20 minutes on. But 
I get more enjoyment out of that. You think that's just a nostalgic factor, or do you think that the guys who kind of invented this industry really understood gameplay a lot better because of the limitations than the people do now? I think your your identification of the the game experience that most matches like what you're comfortable with is very telling, and it's 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 generational. Um, you know, the, the, it, 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 it's informed by, uh, uh, the, the time in which you became familiar with the, the art form to begin with. Uh, maybe somewhat, but if someone asked me what's the best game of all time, I'll say Grand, Grand Theft Auto 3 with, in slash Vice City. The, I think those are the best games that's I've ever played. Let me ask you this. Do you think that there's such a thing as an optimal game loop time? Yeah, I think it's probably, you mean years or how long a person will play a game? How long a specific mechanic in a game lasts before it becomes... Yeah, I think it's probably about four years. Hmm, interesting. I think a game like GTA has about a four-year lifespan for innovation and excitement, and then it's just like, now now we're just going to rinse and repeat that. Red Dead Redemption, Grand Theft Auto V, all these are still the same games that Rockstar made for the PS2 back in 2000, 2001, right? They really haven't changed. The graphics look great. You can do a few more things in the game. But the the essential, this is the game, hasn't changed. Halo 5, it, it seems like a fun game. I think people will like it. It looks so much better than the original one on the original Xbox, but it's the same thing. I'm this guy, first person walking around shooting aliens. The aliens are the same aliens. They had that four or five year period between Halo 1, 2, and maybe even 3 a little bit that that was, that was its time. Arcades, you know, we had the mid-80s to the late 80s. That was the first generation of arcade games. They died out. And then we got the second generation, which was... You know, the X-Men, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that was the early 90s to the mid-90s, and then that died out. So I think five years for a genre of game is probably it. And once that genre has run its course, it, they're just milking it at that point until something new comes around. Pokemon Go, brand new. We're going to see some more argumented reality games. It's going to last four to five years tops. And then it'll be on to the next thing. We'll still see those games, but it'll just be a rehash. Now, the interesting thing about Pokemon <laughs> Go is Pokemon Go is a little bit like the iPhone. You know, it wasn't the first AR game. Mm-mm. You know, it wasn't even the first AR game from Niantic. You know, nope. the, the developer of Pokemon Go used the same maps that they had developed for their previous game for Pokemon Go. Uh, you know, they recycled the the, 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 the the same data. It's hilarious. Um, and some of the same game gameplay mechanics as well. So... Um, yeah, but that four to five years to me is when it hits big. When it hits big, yeah. right. So when it hits big, and then you got four to five years to milk that, and then it's dead as far as innovation goes. You know what the funny thing about Pokemon Go to me is that the big the big news, the banner headline when this when this game hit was, oh, wow, it's an augmented reality game. You can catch Pokemon Go in the real world. Right. It's also the most singular, annoying feature of the game. And it's something that actually the game developer lets you turn off. There's an AR switch that you can click in the upper right-hand corner of your screen to shut it off. And then you just get a rendered play field, which means that you're not, like, jamming your iPhone around in space trying to find the thing. It just pops the, – the Pokemon pops up in front of you, and, you know, then you, you try to catch it with a Pokeball. Uh, it's a much simpler gameplay mechanic, but it requires you to shut off that camera. Yeah, the the camera's fun. You know, the novelty of it, the first couple of levels is hilarious. It's awesome. Then it gets boring really quick. Shut it off, continue on. So the most vaunted feature of the game is the most annoying and something that a lot of players turn off as soon as they get the chance to anyway. Check this out. I picked this up on uh, Amazon. You do you have you don't you don't have an Xbox One, correct? I don't. I'm you still don't. using a 360. Um and to be honest, for the most part, there's not a whole lot of difference. I was expecting a a leap in gameability on the Xbox One compared to the 360. It's and the same thing with the three PS3 and PS4. It's just not there. It's better, but it's just prettier. You, you, I'm not getting anything. Holy moly, look at this. But I picked up this game collection. Maybe you've heard of this. Maybe you haven't. It's called Rare Replay. 
It's uh, the company Rare released this. They updated the graphics and everything, but the core game is the same uh, for the Xbox One. It's 30 Rare games, Rare, get it, Rare, uh, in one disc. You get Banjo-Kazooie, uh, a couple of those, Battletoads, Jetpack Games, uh, Digger Rock, uh, the Conquer Games, uh, Camino, Killer Instinct. Battletoads. Battletoads is on there. Uh, it, this was 20 bucks. I think it was less than 20 bucks. I think I picked up for 16.99. Viva Piñata, Perfect Dark, Perfect Dark Zero. I mean, this is this is killer. The 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 underrated and like criminally underrated and amazingly hilarious Conquer's Bad Fur Day. Is oh, so good. So good. That was a uh, N64 game, wasn't it? Or was uh, that a that that was an N64 yep. game, and uh, if you remember, it was a very controversial N64 game because it was one of the very few M-rated yes. N64 games that yes. ever saw saw the, the light of day. So this is the description lovingly presented for the Xbox One. Enjoy over 60 minutes of behind-the-scene footage. Oh, are you kidding? That's amazing. I, I'm looking forward to playing this. I see... But then again, here we go. This is nostalgic. This isn't the new thing. This is the old thing that I'm just going to replay. I played half of these games already on the original systems, but I'm excited about that. Now, do you think that's just the nostalgia factor kicking in, or do you think it's, hey, these are really, this is a company that really makes good games, and I can enjoy them on my current system? I think it really depends. You know, I take a look at my kids as, as sort of a litmus test for this sort of stuff, right? When I'm trying to, like, check my. My reality of um, of uh, or, or my my expectation of, of of the way that I see things with the reality of, of things when it comes to games. I've got two kids who don't play the old games, but one who does. My oldest um, very much has a strong nostalgia streak, um, and is sort of is more of a gamer historian. He really gets why these games were fun and good and worth playing, and uh, sort of re- respects the 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 um, the composition and the art form of them. But it's really funny seeing some of his friends take a look at at, at the stuff, and you know the, these are kids who are developing their own games. You know these aren't uh, technically illiterate people, but they're people developing their own games who are like. Yeah, you know, that's fine, Grandpa, but this is where we're at now. Exactly, yeah. You know, so I think a lot of it really depends on, you know, sort of the cultural perspective that you're raised in. Let's take our uh, quick break here, and we'll be right back with uh, Peter Cohen. Hi, I'm Bart Bouchard, host of the Let's Talk Apple podcast. Every month I gather together a panel of Apple followers, and we digest the month's Apple news. Our aim is to step back and take a 40,000-foot view of all things Apple. We're the perfect complement to the many great daily news shows out there. Listen and subscribe at www.letstalk.ie. Back here on Tech Fan number 268, I'm Tim Robertson, special guest Peter Cohen. We want to uh, thank our sponsor this week. It is MacSales.com. Right now, if you've got kids in school, and even if you don't, I mean, you can. It's not like you can't buy something because it's a back-to-school sale. <laughs> there might be something in here you want, and hey, it's a back-to-school sale. Um, you're going to buy it. They have a great sale going on right now. Like I said, it's the back-to-school. You could buy a pre-owned MacBook Air starting at 500 bucks, 499 That's a really good deal for a MacBook Air. And let's be honest, Apple has an updated machine. You're going to get a very powerful machine compared to what they're selling right now at a half or a third of the cost. So check them out at MacSales.com. I'm going to put a link into the back-to-school sale because there's some really good prices in here. If you need, I, I, look, they got the Aura SSDs for the new MacBooks or MacBook Pros. I can't tell you, when I was there, I was getting people asking all the time, when are you going to have an SSD upgrade for the currently shipping 2013 and later MacBook Pros? Well, they have them now. And they're starting at 95 bucks. So MaxSales.com, thank you very much for sponsoring this episode of TechFan. We really do appreciate it. Um, we do get some feedback. I got one um, from Greg Fland. I think that's what it says. I don't have my reading glasses on. Uh, yes. On Twitter, 
And uh, I like this. Thank you, Greg. He said, uh, Tim, want to let you know I really enjoyed and appreciated your interview with Glenn Reed. Uh, I don't know if you know who Glenn Reed is, Peter. He's the guy who wrote, who created uh, the original iMovie and iPhoto at Apple. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. That, you know, to me, that was a hugely significant release on Apple's part because up until that point, Apple really didn't bundle software in a Mac. They were kind of against that. They That's where the third-party support came from. And this guy really changed all that. And I was trying to impress upon him the importance that I was putting into the original iMovie release, what that did for so many people. How many people do you know got into photo or uh, video editing and filmmaking because of iPhoto or uh, iMovie? It was the first consumer but yet professional level as far as output is concerned, video editing tool. You know, it was hugely informative for a lot of people. But the thing that made it most, uh, I, I think, uh, important isn't even uh, people who got into video as a result of you know their early experience with iMovie, uh, but just how, I guess integrated all of that has become to what our expectation of how we use our devices is yeah you know in terms of just being able to use video and uh, some of the new stuff that apple has done too like live photos sort of continues you know that that idea of just capturing these little moments in time uh so hugely influential and uh and and uh uh, uh very very cool so let's get back to our main topic yes televisions and what could be better what do you think is lacking right now from a human interface perspective on a monitor or a television? What What is the a couple things that you think really need to be addressed or really should be addressed? Well, you know, I, th- I think uh, the, the the best thing that, that most of these companies could, could could do would be to try to present, I think, a, a simpler way of looking at how to access the various features on their devices. You know, a more intuitive way because these hierarchical, uh, button-driven menus are just so antiquated at this point and so perfunctory and and barely functional. Uh, in their current state, it's really kind of a shame. And I, I don't know of a single. I, I'd, I'd be happy to get a recommendation from anyone. Mm, me too. Um, that that you know, for a single uh, uh, device that that doesn't completely stink because they all do. And you know, one of the issues is you want to do a certain thing with the TV, but what the manufacturer calls it, what that adjustment is, isn't even always obvious to an average person oh i could change the gamma settings what the hell is that the, the average person is not going to know what that is aspect ratio i don't it i want the tv to be that size i don't understand what the aspect ratio is um there's so many things that you could adjust on your television to fit your viewing habits uh your viewing room i mean there's the room that you watch the tv in is going to affect the picture of the television and you can adjust it to more fit your room but they don't make it obvious. They don't. They don't make it so you can make those changes as a human being. To f- so most people just plug it in. They plug the HDMI cable from their cable box or satellite provider in, and they're good to go. They turn it off. They turn it on. Maybe they adjust the volume on the television if they don't have it hooked up like to a stereo like you do, and that's about it. It, it could be a much better experience, but they. Do- it's not that it's not just difficult. They don't even know they can do these things. I've also found that most people have absolutely no idea what the right screen size is for the room that they're in. Yeah, that's true too. You know, and I, I think that the the bigger is not always better. Bigger, bigger is not always better, and higher def is not always better either. I mean, 4K is cool if you've got a really big set and you've got a lot of bandwidth. You know, but it's, or you're in a and you're in a bigger room. Yeah, and you're in a much bigger room, but. You know, for, for if the, the, the average person who's in a living room that's fairly small, it's not going to make that big a difference, right. if any noticeable difference whatsoever. So there's an inherent, um, I think, uh, conflict here between what's good for the consumer and what the industry is trying to do also. You see a lot of upsell right now to 4K 
Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people don't need 4K. A lot of people are never going to benefit from 4K. Well, the television industry has always been about, right now it's 4K, but just four years ago it was, oh, we're, everyone's releasing a 3D TV and nobody cared. No, they didn't ask once, because do you want 3D? And if you ask a consumer, they'd be like, sure, but they didn't really. It's because the TV market saw a huge amount of disruption and a huge amount of change when things went from, uh, sealed beam sets to to flat screens. Yeah, um, and they were looking to continue that momentum. You know, they were looking to continue <clears throat> to get to to get consumers to turn sh- through things. So, you know, they they figured the new shiny was 3D, and that fizzled out. And now the new shiny is 4K. Um, and we'll see how much staying power that has. But you know, the, the consumers need to be very careful. Um, you know, when when they look at these things to make sure that they're actually getting. Uh, enough benefit to make it worth their while, uh, because you know, sometimes there are just early adoption headaches that you you don't think about that uh, that that you're going to uh, to run into that that can cause problems further down the line. Before we wrap up this episode of Tech Fan Peter, tell me what you're doing over there at Backblaze. I know you're managing editor for the Backblaze blog, but that's a well, you can't really say that one fast, can you? The Backblaze blog. <laughs> a little bit of a tongue twister. A little bit. Yes, a little bit. Uh, so, what are you doing over there? What's what's the gig? Well, I am writing for uh, Backblaze, and I'm also um, editing other people's work. Um, but uh, and you know, planning an editorial calendar and all the stuff that a managing editor does, basically. Uh, but you know, we have a very active blog uh, over at Backblaze, and uh, something that we're very proud of. Um, and uh, we we write about all sorts of interesting things. Some of it is practical how tos, how to back up your uh, your Mac or your iPhone. Uh, that's the sort of stuff that uh, that we talk about. Uh, we also talk about uh, best back- backup practices um, for, you know, different kinds of businesses, different kinds of consumers, different products that you can use to back up stuff. Uh, not just ours either. It isn't just you know. A lot yeah, I was of- going to ask you that. How do you balance? Look, you're in a very uh, opinionated guy, just like I am. Um, how do you? Balance that budget or that uh, balance of I work for a company. There's obviously going to be a bias on our products because they pay my paycheck. But yet, I'm a creative writer. Uh, I have my opinions, and it's a great big world out there. And not everybody is using our technology, so you still want to draw people in to read the content. Hopefully, they'll become a customer. But how do you balance that? I think that the, there are two things that that you've got to keep in mind. Most importantly, and one is that you've got to talk authentically to your customers. Mm-hmm. You know, people can smell bullshit a mile away. Absolutely. Um, so don't, um, and I'm sorry for going PG, but it's true. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. And, um, the other thing is, uh, have a story to tell, you know, the, the greatest thing about working at Backblaze is that we've got so many great stories to share with our customers. Um, you know, our quarterly, uh, drive, uh, failure figures, I have become a favorite, a a perennial favorite, uh, around the internet. Um, because uh, it's interesting information that people are really interested in, and 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 uh, it, it's an interesting story for us to tell. Um, you know how we put together our storage pods and our storage vaults. It's the same sort of story. You know, we open this design up so everybody can build one. We, we this is a non-proprietary uh, system that we've developed. We're really interested in in what other people are doing. Um, uh, so we we. Just you know, try to have that authentic connection with our customers, and I think it makes a big difference. I think that that OWC does the same thing, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that a lot of companies that take their customers seriously as friends do. I am working with uh, on the side, and I don't promote it here on the show because uh, I write their weekly email, um, and up until this point, their weekly email was just ads. We're selling this. We're selling this. We're selling this. So. I talked to this company. I said, you know, I, I understand why you do that, and, and you see some good returns on the weekly email, but you've conditioned people to ignore it unless they actually need to buy RAM or a hard drive or this or that. They're not even looking at your email at this point because they already know what it is. It's just add, 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 add. I said, what you should do is give them content for free in the weekly email, make an article. And it's it's free for anybody who downloads the, the email to read, and they're going to get something out of it. 
you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? Hey, what's the best practice? Should I be putting my Mac to sleep every night or should I be turning it off? Um, how should I protect my Mac from, uh, uh, you know, electrical surges, stuff like that? Uh, should Do I really need an SSD? Give them free content. Get them used to getting that email on a weekly basis and wanting to read it because they're going to get something out of it. And then when they do need the products that you're selling, you're the first one they think of because they're always reading your emails. There's there's actual content there. So they're doing a pretty good job of that. They're not doing anything. They're kind of repurposing a little bit on their blog. But my other thing with them was, look, you need to do two more things. You need to actually engage on social media, not just throwing out ad, ad, ad like you were doing before in the in the newsletter. And take advantage of this blog platform that you have to present content to get people to come to read that. So you're part of the conversation. You're part of that user's weekly thing. I always go and read the content on this blog. I get this email and I'm, I'm getting free content. I'm learning more about my machine. If I have a question, they're answering it as a person on social media, not just a corporate entity. And I think black black backblaze is doing that. I think it's great. OWC obviously did that pretty well. I worked for them for a while and I did all their social media. It was that human voice. And I think if more companies do that, they're going to see success. Engage with the customer. Talk to them. Don't just try to sell them stuff. If if all you're doing is trying to sell them stuff, they're never going to be a loyal customer unless you have such fantastic products like Apple does that they're going to come back no matter how many times you beat them down by not releasing new ones. And look, there's no secret sauce, right? The, the, there's no. That is the secret sauce. That is the secret sauce, but in in the same token, the secret sauce doesn't work for everyone. You don't put the secret sauce on the fillet of fish and the and the uh, uh, you know the everything else. The secret sauce goes on the Big Mac, right? You know, it, it's. I think what I just described would actually work for every single company out there. I can't think of one that it would. If you're selling Girl Scout cookies. It will I think work. It, I think it depends. I think it, one size doesn't fit everyone. You know, engineering-driven organizations aren't particularly good at this and probably really shouldn't be forced uh, to do a, a lot of social media stuff some, sometimes. And sometimes it can backfire, uh, you know, when, when they get really kind of ham-handed with it, too. <laughs> well, that's uh, why so, you bring people like you and I in to handle it for them. Right, right, right. We could yeah, speak I mean, the geek, and then we can also speak to the consumer. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, for, for, from that perspective, I think like, what I said before is, is vitally important. It's just about it's just finding an authentic voice and finding an interesting story to share. And if you've got that, uh, the rest of it is, 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 is a cakewalk. Absolutely. Peter, where can people find you online to uh, see what you're up to? Backblaze.com uh, slash blog is, the, is where you'll find the Backblaze blog. Um, and uh, on Twitter, I am at Flarg, F-L-A-R-G-H. Um, and I also have my own website, Peter-Cohen, C-O-H-E-N.com. Peter, thanks very much for being on uh, Tech Fan this week. I really do appreciate it, man. Tim, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. David should be back next week, and uh, we'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.